Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program, produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. This week on Women on the Line, we're going to be looking at climate issues, specifically coral bleaching in Australia. Listeners may have heard the news, which has emerged in the last few weeks, that on average, 35% of the coral across the Great Barrier Reef is dead or dying. To take a closer look at this phenomenon, first we'll speak with Dr Mia Hugenboom from the ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies about what's happening on the Great Barrier Reef. Then we'll cross the country to speak with her colleague, Dr Verena Schöpf, who will discuss the situation in terms of coral reefs in Western Australia. I'm Mia Hugenboom. I'm a program leader in the ARC Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies and a lecturer at James Cook University. To begin with, I asked Mia about what coral bleaching actually is and how it happens. Coral bleaching is a stress response of corals to abnormal environmental conditions. So basically what happens is corals are an animal, like a jellyfish, but within their tissues they have a photosynthetic algae. And when they bleach, those photosynthetic algae are expelled, meaning that the coral's losing its primary energy source. Bleaching occurs in response to a range of stressors, so even things like low salinity and low temperature can cause bleaching. But when we see these global mass bleaching events, they've um, to date been associated with abnormally high sea surface temperatures. I asked Mia about the symbiotic relationship between the coral and the algae. Does the algae feed the coral? or? Yes, the algae photosynthesizes and then it supplies its excess photosynthate, so the energy the algae is making from photosynthesis, that gets transferred over to the coral tissue. And the coral tissue transfers nutrients that it gets from feeding on plankton in the water. It's transferring those nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus back to the algae. So there's this sharing of energy and nutrients between the coral host and the photosynthetic symbionts. Wow. I suppose we're talking about quite complex interwoven systems here, and that's one of the reasons why bleaching events are quite serious. It is quite a complex sharing of resources, and I think that complexity means there's a balancing point of that nutrient sharing between those partners. So when that becomes out of balance, such as when there's too much photosynthate being produced by the symbionts, or their metab- the metabolism is so high that we get those oxygen radicals being produced, just like what happens when you're exercising yourself, you're building up oxygen radicals within your tissues. Uh, that also happens to corals, and that's another thing that triggers this bleaching. You you mentioned that this is um, yeah part of a global coral bleaching event. I mean, perhaps we could talk about the history of big coral bleaching events um, and their significance in terms of climate change. Yeah, so we're not sure, uh, completely sure that this is a global event as yet. So the bleaching that's happening at the moment is still unfolding. We have seen bleaching in Hawaii, other places like Fiji, and most recently in the Maldives. So that suggests that it's unfolding as a a global phenomenon, but we're still right in the middle of it. Uh, Our first major bleaching event was really um, in 1998, 
That was a global bleaching event that affected the Caribbean right through the Pacific and across the Indian Ocean. There was another bleaching event in 2002 that was mainly impacted here on the GBR. Another one in 2010 that affected lots of places around the world but wasn't so bad on the barrier reef. And this event that we're currently experiencing now. So it does seem to be a relatively recent phenomenon. Uh, We have seen there is evidence of bleaching events in the past, but they've tended to be more localised, so happening just in certain locations rather than right across uh, the globe, I guess. And I noticed in uh, some of the material that this is in result of, um, I mean, temperatures have only increased by, I think it's one degree Celsius from pre-industrial times at this point. Yeah, that's one degree on average. Right. Mm-hmm. And, for example, if we're looking at uh, the recent Paris climate talks, I think the two-degree increase was the benchmark set as what would be a you know a maximum acceptable increase. Yeah. Uh, so it's important to remember that on reefs and in the environment in general, we see seasonal and daily fluctuations in temperature. So that one-degree increase on average is a little misleading in a way because on top of that increase or that increase in average temperature, it also means that those fluctuations we see between seasons and days are reaching higher levels. It means that the temperature in the environment gets above a critical threshold for the organisms. So corals and all organisms have physiological processes that they use to cope with small fluctuations in temperature and fluctuations in light and other things like nutrients. So they have a kind of inbuilt flexibility that allows them to cope with uh, seasonal changes in these conditions. But what happens during these bleaching events is that temperature goes beyond that maximum level of their flexible system to cope with. So it's going above their threshold level. So in terms of the way this is affecting what's happening, the, the Great Barrier Reef, we've had this very alarming figure that over, or it certainly sounds alarming, <laughs> that over 35% of the, the coral is um, dead or dying. I mean, what, what's the significance of that? Yeah, so a 35% loss of corals on average is a huge um, dent in the population. So if you can imagine a 35% loss of any organisms in any population, that's a really radical change in the number of living organisms left in the environment. So that 35% is an average for all of the reefs between Townsville up to the Torres Strait that we surveyed. So there were reefs south of about Cairns where that estimate of the number of dead and dying is much, much lower. So less than 5% on some of the reefs south of Cairns. But then north of Cairns, there's reefs where that uh, predicted or estimated mortality is up to 50%. Mm, I I did have a quick look at the map or or link to it so people can see, but the representation of areas where it is 50% or more is, it seems quite quite a significant, there there are lots of those purple dots on on the map, yeah. Yeah, there are lots of those purple dots and they're concentrated in that area where the warming uh, seems to have been the worst. So the southern part of the Great Barrier Reef, we believe that that escaped uh, serious bleaching because of a cyclone that came through, so Cyclone Winston, that caused a lot of damage in Fiji. As it moved westwards, it came, uh, it wasn't a cyclone anymore, it was a rain depression. So it came through and brought uh, cooler water and 
the clouds created shading, which meant the light levels on the reef and the warming wasn't as bad through that southern section. Wow. So it seems to be that that weather phenomenon is the thing that's helped out the southern part of the Great Barrier Reef in this event. That, that's really interesting. I assumed it was because it was further south and therefore cooler. So that sort of points to things being, I mean, that it can have such a short-term event, can have such a significant impact on how the reef is affected, I think is is both really interesting and concerning in terms of um, what we're sort of looking at here. In terms of how the reef is affected by bleaching, I mean, do, do some parts tend to bleach first? Are some corals more susceptible than others? Or Yes, that's definitely the case. So there's some corals that are far more susceptible than others. It's mainly the branching corals that are the most susceptible. And they're also the ones that provide a lot of the complex structure on the reef. So things like fish really prefer to hang out inside those branching corals. Mm -hmm. So when we lose those, we're also losing part of the ecosystem that helps promote high diversity of fish and other organisms as well. In terms of the recovery of the reef, is the reef likely to recover at this point? Yeah, so recovery depends on several different factors. So one thing that really drives early recovery is the corals left on the reef. So when bleaching isn't severe, and when, which means that the corals might have lost some of their symbionts, they've lost some of their colour, but they haven't turned completely white. So when that happens, most of those corals that are only a little bit bleached um, are very well able to recover. So we're expecting that on those reefs south of Cairns, uh, there, there won't be much mortality and the reefs there will be in the same state as they are at the moment, essentially. For the reefs that have been really badly affected with really high mortality, uh, that means that there's not many corals left on, their re on those reefs to drive that early recovery. And that means that recovery is really dependent on new corals coming in from other reefs. So corals have larvae that disperse in the, through the water column. Uh, that dispersal depends on hydrodynamic currents as well. So it's a complex uh, process of depending on how many coral babies are produced on healthy reefs and how many of those coral babies are then carried by the currents to the reefs that have been damaged. Right. Is a damaged reef necessarily, a, um, I suppose, a, a fertile environment for new coral to land on or are there problems there as well? Yeah, it can be. So it really depends uh, on how much of this important uh, algae called coralline algae is present on these reefs. So the coralline algae is a purplish kind of calcifying algae and it provides a cemented base of the reef essentially. And juvenile corals have a preference for settling on top of that coralline algae. So if there's plenty of that coralline algae left on the reef and a good supply of new coral recruits coming in, then that's uh, a good place for recovery to happen. If there's not much of that coralline algae because it's been covered in sediments or covered with algae, then uh, the lack of that coralline algae can really prevent recovery from occurring. To sort of move out on our perspective a little bit, what kinds of flow-on effects can be expected from, from significant coral death on the Great Barrier Reef? Does damage to the reef affect things on land as well? Or? Yeah, so on the short term, damage to the reef isn't likely to have much of an impact on the land. On the long term, if the reef uh, degrades and breaks down over time, then one of those important ecosystem 
goods and services that reefs provide, which is coastal protection, that can start to be eroded. So in the short term, like over the next 10 to 15 years, we wouldn't expect this bleaching event to have much impact on uh, coastal lands of Australia. It does have an impact or it potentially has an impact on other parts of the ecosystem though. So when we're losing those branching corals with that complex structure, that means there's less shelter available for coral reef fishes. So we might expect to have fewer of those small fish on the reef. And if there's fewer of those small fish, there's not as much food for the larger fish to eat. So we would see this flow-on effect of de potentially decreasing abundance of fish over time as well. Yeah, again, I suppose that sort of points to the interlinkedness of everything as well as the complexity of the systems which are changing. I mean, I suppose in some senses it may be quite difficult to predict what will happen or is it fairly straightforward? Uh, no, it's difficult to predict things like recovery rates of reefs because of that hydrodynamic currents factor. So we know broadly which directions the currents move in, but water flows around reefs are really complex. And we also have big tidal movement of water on the Great Barrier Reef. That means predicting exactly where larvae that are uh, produced at one reef eventually end up is quite complicated. Mm -hmm. So we are doing some research in that area. There's people developing hydrodynamic models for this larval transport. And one thing that we're planning to do in the future is use those models in, in conjunction with data we have about how many corals are left on certain reefs to try and predict how quickly those northern reefs that have been badly affected are likely to recover. So while we're talking about currents, perhaps it would be useful to talk about El Nino and La Nina. Uh, there's a general view out there in the literature that bleaching events are linked with these El Nino events. We've been looking back through the data and there's been El Nino years where there's not bleaching and bleaching years that weren't linked to El Ninos. So it's true that El Nino brings warmer waters and that often or can coincide with bleaching, but there's not a direct, complete relationship between El Nino and bleaching. Is there anything that can be done to protect coral that's at risk of bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef? Uh, it's really driven by increasing ocean temperatures. So the main thing we can do is reducing our carbon emissions. And I know most people think that's not something they can do on a personal level, but every little bit helps. So doing things like biking to work or walking instead of driving, taking public transport, trying to reduce air travel, uh, all of those things, people can take those steps themselves to start to reduce carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. Uh, some other things have been proposed to help bleaching, things like shading reefs or uh, another one is this process of active reef restoration where corals are transplanted from one location to another. So both of those things might be something that people consider doing for small locations. So say for a key dive site that tourism operators were really reliant on, then some of those active restoration processes could be uh, feasible but it's certainly not something that we can do on a broad spatial scale across the whole barrier reef mm -hmm. or even on a global scale. And, I mean, is one of the issues here that as maybe the f frequency of bleaching events becomes more, they become closer together, the reef has less time to recover between events as well? Yeah, so that's a real problem. 
some of the reefs around uh, our area, so around Orpheus Island, which is a place we visit quite regularly from Townsville, there were areas on those reefs that were covered in these thickets of those branching Acropora, and those bleached and died in 1998. And now, in 2016, we just went back to those same sites and took photos of those exact same areas where there were big thickets of Acropora in 1996, and those areas still haven't recovered. So that indicates that there's areas of reefs that take much more than 30 years to recover and may never recover at all. You mentioned the individual things people can do if they're concerned about this sort of thing and want to reduce their carbon emissions. Is there anything that listeners can do more broadly in terms of addressing this issue if they're concerned about it? Uh, I think lobbying their local members of parliament to take Mm -hmm. action about reducing carbon emissions is uh, the best thing that people can do. Absolutely. And is there anywhere listeners can go if they're interested in this topic and want some more information? Uh, Sure. So our website, which is the ARC Centre of Excellence website, it's coralcoe.org.au, is a great place for information about lots of coral reef-related topics. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. We're bringing you a discussion about coral bleaching, and that was Dr Mia Hugenboom. As well as speaking with Mia about what's happening on the Great Barrier Reef, I was also able to speak with her colleague, Dr Verena Schöpf, to get a perspective on the situation in Western Australia. I'm Dr Verena Schöpf. I'm a research associate at the Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at the University of Western Australia. I began by asking about global coral bleaching events. Yeah, so um, in the last 18 years, we've had three so-called global mass bleaching events. And that means um, that significant coral bleaching has occurred in all three major ocean basins, so the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and the Caribbean. And this has happened three times in the last 18 years. And the current bleaching event, at least on the Great Barrier Reef, is by far the most severe of all those three. In terms of what's happening in Western Australia, what, what is the situation there? Well, so in Western Australia, we have significant coral reefs all along the coast, in the northwest in the Kimberley, but also Ningaloo, and then some coral reefs in the Abrales Islands. And what we're seeing this year is that the inshore Kimberley reefs in the northwest of Australia have bleached for the very first time, as far as we know. So could you tell us more about those reefs? I understand they're a bit special. Yeah, exactly. The Kimberley coral reefs are really very unique because they are subjected to the most extreme tropical tides in the world. So that means that the tidal range is up to 10 or 11 meters in some of those places. And that essentially means for shallow water corals that when the tide is really low, that these corals get exposed to air for a significant amount of time, often a few hours. And so what happened during this bleaching event is that, especially in March, April each year, and also in September, October, the tides are the most extreme. So that coincided with the time period when the water temperatures were really warm. And we're thinking that the combination of these low tides and the hot water um, caused very significant coral bleaching in the Kimberley for the first time. Yeah, I was reading some of the material you sent through and the reefs up there were exposed to temperatures as high as 37 degrees in the air? Yeah, exactly. Um, So sometimes what happens is these shallow water corals 
when the tide drops, they kind of sit in um, tide pools because that's where the water kind of stays. And that water is essentially stagnant and just sits there for a few hours and really starts to heat up. So what we see in those tide pools is that the temperature for at least, you know, an hour or so goes up to 37 degrees and they experience significant temperature swings on a daily basis. And what's happening in the Kimberley is especially significant as well in that it was thought that because of the the broader temperature range these corals were exposed to, that maybe they'd be more resilient, have adapted yeah, to Yeah, exactly. Like um, so the Kimberley is very remote and therefore really understudied. So most people knew that there is these amazing coral reefs up there and that they cope with these very extreme daily conditions. And so everybody kind of assumed that, well, if they can cope with that, then surely they must be um, better able to cope with climate change and global warming. But when I did a study to look at this experimentally, I was kind of simulating a heat stress event. We actually saw that this is probably not the case. and that they're, So they are more resistant because of these extreme conditions, but that does not make them immune to such a severe heat stress even as the current one. In terms of the effect of coral bleaching on broader ecosystems, what happens when coral bleaches in reefs? What kind of effects does it have? Well, for one, we have a lot of um, effects within the ecosystem because the corals are really the, the organisms that build coral reefs. So all the other organisms, all the fish that live on coral reefs, they depend on the coral being there. So when the coral dies, it means that the whole reef structure degrades and then the fish and all the other organisms no longer have the same kind of habitat. So essentially you will find um, less fish there, less other organisms. But coral reefs also provide important ecosystem services for really millions around the world because they protect coastlines from storms, for example, and obviously they play a really big role in tourism but also fisheries. So when we lose coral reefs, it has not only impacts on biodiversity and the ecosystem in itself, but also for humans. And in terms of what's happening in Western Australia, for listeners who might not be familiar with the geography of Western Australia or what coral reefs Mm. are like there, are there any places that are especially affected? And how do reefs on the West Coast differ from, say, what's happening in the East? So first of all, the good news is that at least in Western Australia, the the severe bleaching is restricted to the Kimberley region in the northwest of WA, so north of Broome. Whereas the other reefs further south, particularly the World Heritage Site of Ningaloo Reef, has not experienced any bleaching. So that is really good news. Overall, generally, the reefs are in somewhat better condition in Western Australia because they have only had one major coral bleaching event in the past. So that is really actually a very new thing in Australia, in Western Australia at all. And there also seem to be slightly different dynamics at play. So some reefs in Western Australia seem to bleach only when it is a La Nina phase, so the more the cooler phase in other places, not necessarily El Nino. So it's a slightly more complex. You mentioned the, the Ningaloo Reef. Could you tell us more about that? You, you mentioned the previous bleaching incident. Is, is that the same one? Um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but the one that happened in 2011, when I think that reef experienced quite severe coral bleaching? Yeah, exactly. So in 2011, that was really the first major bleaching event in Western Australia, and that was in 2011. 
And so Ningalu Reef, but everything for the south as well, was particularly hard hit during that year. So the good news is that Ningaloo has been spared this year. And that's actually a World Heritage site, is that right? It is, exactly. It is actually um, the largest fringing reef in Australia. What, what's a fringing reef? Um, so, you know, the Great Barrier Reef is a barrier reef, so it means it's not right at the coast. It's actually, you have to go there by boat because it's slightly further away from the coast and separated from it by a lagoon. In contrast, a fringing reef is right at the beach. So a Ningaloo Reef, you just go in the water, start snorkeling, and there is the coral right there. Well, I mean, I suppose that's some positive news in a concerning a concerning story. Yeah, um, definitely. In terms of protecting coral reefs, can coral bleaching be stopped? What kind of action is it possible to take when we're talking about such large-scale climactic factors? Well, unfortunately, once um, you know a major bleaching event is in full swing, there is very little we can do because... The, the primary cause of this is really the hot water temperature, and we just don't have any means of cooling down the water on such large spatial scales. However, what we can do is, during those times, it's very important to minimize a lot of local stressors. So, for example, if there is runoff you know, from rivers or agriculture, or if we're talking about other forms of pollution, minimizing those local stressors can really help a reef to deal with bleaching. Mm-hmm. So including things like, uh, I was reading issues like sediment from dredging and even the crown of thorns starfish are quite significant in WA? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, all of these things should be absolutely minimised or stopped when you know that the, that a reef is already suffering from bleaching because that might just be the difference between severe bleaching but not that much mortality or like a lot of mortality. And if listeners are concerned about coral bleaching, what what's the best thing for them to do? Well, I mean, ultimately, it really, the main goal has to be that we um, reduce atmospheric CO2 concentrations because that is at the root of the problem. So ultimately, what everyone can do is kind of pressure their politicians to implement policies that drive, you know, renewable energies and replace CO2-emitting forms of energy. That is the ultimate thing that needs to be done, and it needs to be done fast because we're kind of running out of time. That was Dr Verena Schiff talking about coral bleaching in Western Australia. That's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419. 8377. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time. <laughs>